Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about Idlib. It is now uh, a few days since the Russian-Syrian campaign has started. Uh, Monitors have reported more than 70 Russian airstrikes, 50 regime barrel bombings, 15 cluster munition attacks, and more than 565 artillery artillery strikes. And um, many people are predicting uh, a bloodbath on a scale which we have yet to see even in this most bloody of wars. And there is a, a debate going on in different places about what Europe's reaction to this should be. Um, and uh, people are particularly interested as well in the role that other players, particularly the Turks, are uh, going to adopt as the crisis escalates. To help us make sense of the situation, we have an all-star cast. Returning to the podcast once again, Julian Barnes-Dacey, the head of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program, and our lead analyst on Syria from the beginning of the conflict, uh, coming down the phone from Istanbul, we have Asla Adin Tashbash. Welcome back, Asla. And sitting next to me here in Berlin, along with Julian, is Almut Müller, who is the head of our office in Berlin and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. Why don't we start with you, Julian? Um, tell us both about what's going on, what the background is, why Idlib, why is this particularly important, why is it so uh, uh, troubling from a humanitarian perspective? Sure. I mean, Idlib is the the last, in a sense, remaining opposition stronghold or independent opposition stronghold um, holding out against Assad. Assad, over the last year, has really consolidated his position across Syria. He's taken the south. um, He's moved into the east and into other areas of the country. Idlib stands out as the one area of um, uh, strong opposition forces that he is still able to move on. That is because in the northeast and and to the direct north of the country, you have areas that are directly under the control of the Americans and the Turks, where he doesn't feel able to to move militarily on, but Idlib doesn't enjoy that direct foreign intervention. You have a hard core group of of opposition there that he wants to, to, to take out. And essentially, this is part of his strategy to regain control of all of the country. Um, the dilemmas and, and, and the difficulties come in the fact that you do have up to 3 million uh, civilians uh, living in Idlib. You have an opposition that is made up of a uh, significant contingent of more extremist fighters uh, linked to groups that, that, that have ties or former ties to al-Qaeda, uh, said to number up to 10,000 fighters, although it's probably less than that. So you have both an, an, an extreme civilian uh, risk of, of civilian pain and casualties and humanitarian uh, escalation, but you also have the risk of, of an almighty battle with fighters who are not going to give in. They have nowhere to go. They want to fight to the death. There are no political deals to really be done with these fighters. And so it really sets up the prospect of a, of a, of a quite uh, 
depressing scene. There's been a lot of uh, international diplomacy to try and avert a, a crisis. The Turks, the Iranians, and the Russians met in Tehran last week to try and strike a deal. I think Turkey in particular, and Asli can talk about that, is very worried about the implications of a regime onslaught, um, what that would mean for, for, for refugees potentially moving in, in, into Turkey. But I think the long and the short of it is that the regime uh, wants to regain control of this area. Turkey is unlikely to intervene to stop that. Um, and Russia is trying to hedge between the different actors who it's got ties to, um, to, to, to negotiate a deal. And meanwhile, you have the Europeans and the Americans saying we must have a bloodbath, but, but not really putting much on the table to, to try and find a way out. So apparently, US intelligence has concluded that the Assad regime has authorized the use of chlorine during any upcoming attack. And that's leading to a debate in different European capitals, as well as in the US, about what the reaction should be if chemical weapons get used. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Sure. I mean, look, I mean, the international actors have effectively told Assad, you can move, but don't use chemical weapons. It's a depressing message, and it says a lot about where we are in Syria set after seven years of conflict. They have said firmly, if there are chemical weapons used, uh, there will be a response. Uh, that's something that the Americans have said, the French have said, the Brits have said. Um, there's a debate that, that Almut will talk about in Germany about whether Berlin participates, but there's a very clear consensus that if chemical weapons are used at all, that the attacks will be um, on a much higher proportion than, than, than seen previously when Trump led, led attacks. But, I mean, whether there's intel and how that intel unfolds, I'm not sure, you know, whether chlorine is a chemical weapon or whether it's not, you know, the extent to which it would provoke a response. There's a lot of uncertainty here, uncertainty here, but there does seem to be a bottom line messaging that so long as you don't use chemical weapons, you stay within the realm of, of what we're going to what we're going to allow to to move forward. And a lot of that is sadly based on the idea that there are a lot of extremists in, in Idlib. Um, and despite the civilian casualties, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which Trump or others effectively take military steps that are seen as, 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 as empowering or helping or defending al-Qaeda fighters, even if clearly that's not going to be the driver of action, that it's, it's more about the humanitarian imperative. But the dilemmas are, are obviously very acute, given the nature of the fighters in this area. So I want to come to Asla soon to talk about, about the Turkish position, tanks at the borders, etc. But before we do that, maybe Alma, you're obviously sitting here in Berlin watching the German debate, but you also watch France very closely. What um, is the state of the different European politics is, and government positions on, on Idlib? Well, as we know, Europeans have struggled um, to play a constructive role, and Julian uh, talked about that. Um, but at the same time, um, Berlin very much, and Germany at large, is um, in many ways at the receiving end of uh, what is happening in our neighborhood. And we see that with um, the number of refugees that have arrived in this country over the past years from Syria that have created an intense domestic debate. Um, that uh, issue has even uh, meant uh, like earthquake type of um, uh, rocking of Angela Merkel's ability to, to stand firm as a chancellor. Um, so, you know, this is a domestically very heated question that is linked, uh, of course, to the future of, of Syria at present stage. Parliament is just back after the recess, after the summer recess, and um, this week is budget week. 
Um, and we have seen that uh, everybody coming back now, the question on the table is one um, additionally sensitive to the German debate, and that is over military intervention. And um, as much as German interests are at stake, and uh, leading politicians are talking about that, Angela Merkel has positioned herself, uh, has said that we can't stand aside, uh, that we need to be engaged, that we have to take responsibility. Um, but also um, there is the big sort of question over what do the others uh, want, her coalition partner, the key coalition partner, the Social Democrats, and the party leader and leader um, of the Social Democrats in Parliament, Adria Nahles, said at a very stage, very clearly, there will not be a support of any military engagement on behalf of the SPD. So here you have already um, what has been described as another perfect sort of controversy or storm coming uh, to the uh, coalition government. As we know, it took a long time to build this government. Um, we have seen on the immigration issue um, big, big sort of controversies between the CDU and the CSU. So here we are again, um, a major issue on the table, should Germany engage militarily or not. Um, there is the ritualized debate somewhat, um, and it's not even a very mature debate compared to what is discussed, I guess, in, in Paris and London, which reflects still that this country is in this trajectory over defining um, what you actually have to do in order to... to um, to defend German interests abroad, and the use of military force is a very difficult one. Um, yesterday we saw the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, a member of Angela Merkel's CDU party, Norbert Röttgen, come out. A member of ECFR's board. Precisely, Norbert <laughs> Röttgen coming out and saying, well, we need to actually even start approaching these very, very tough questions. And Julian described them as, as, as challenging, as daunting, as... as a dilemma and in a way a very, very uh, much an expression of the poor condition that Europeans are in. But if the Germans, as one of the key countries in Europe, are not uh, able to have uh, an informed debate about options, but start to kill any debates uh, before we start discussing uh, options, um, I think Norbert Röttgen is right to say this is not where this country can position itself. And so this is what we're facing here right now. And I would suppose that in other European capitals, there is a lot more concrete and more advanced uh, debate on the issues. What we're expecting, though, is going to be pretty cosmetic, isn't it? It's going to be like what happened last time. No, I think I think the, the thinking is moving in the other direction, that it can't be cosmetic if there are new strikes. So so what I sense and I hear is that, that if, if there is renewed use of chemical weapons, um, that the, the, the reaction by the Americans and European allies will, will be far more extensive than it was on previous occasions where it clearly didn't work. Now, of course, there's a lot of messaging going out which is yeah. precisely aimed to probably not put that scenario on the table. They don't want Assad to use chemical weapons. They're, they're, they're sending, you know, it, it's not a message of don't go into Idlib. It's, it's just don't use chemical weapons when you're going into Idlib. I think what's um, important also to understand the German debate is, of course, a very tense transatlantic dimension right now um, with the German public and also the German government uh, distancing itself from the Trump administration on quite a number of issues. Uh, the German foreign minister came out to talk about the need for a more balanced relationship with the United States, as in Europeans need to be able to defend their own interests. If the US is crossing red lines, we have to have our own answers. So now um, any strike of a coalition uh, of countries that would be led by the US would put additional pressure here on, on the debate in, in Germany, no doubt about that. Okay, so Asla, um, these things are probably slightly less abstract for Turkey than they are for, for the German parliament. 
Um, I mean, even though a lot of refugees came here um, uh, and Germany is at the front line in terms of some of the blowback, less in the front line, even in terms of the number of refugees showing up than, than Turkey. Um, can you tell us what Turkey's interests are, what kind of debates going on there and what Erdogan oh. is doing? Oh, Mark, these issues are very real for Turkey, very much in the non-abstract category. You often hear the word bloodbath in in relationship to Idlib in news stories. And just if there actually was a, 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 a major military operation with a human, resulting in a humanitarian catastrophe as the country next door, Turkey would not be affected physically with the influx of refugees. But I think it would really rattle this country as uh, as a Sunni majority country. And let's face it, there's always been a sectarian element to what's going on in Syria. And I think that a very major humanitarian disaster coupled with stories uh, on a much larger scale than what we saw in Aleppo would really affect Turkish society before even, I think, the government. So from the point of view of the government and, uh, let me say, just Ankara in general, there's three important aspects to this. One is the refugee. You can see Turkish tanks lining up on the border. We're talking about something in the vicinity of three million people in Idlib. And there will, the only place they can come to is Turkey. And Turkey does not want to host them, does not want to have them inside its borders. I think there's efforts to sort of speed up camps, try to form camps outside its borders, and essentially a barrier. Turkey no longer has an open-door policy. But it could just be overwhelming. Second issue is, uh, Julian talked about the different groups, different opposition groups, including Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is Al-Qaeda-linked. And everyone agrees that they're bad people. When they control much of Idlib. But then there is Turkey-backed Sunni opposition groups that are in the south of this area, and they would be the first target in a regime-led operation. And there's a feeling in Ankara that these groups have ties established, and there's a feeling that these groups should not be abandoned. Turkey has been helping them logistically, sort of training them in some cases with the Americans. Later on, Americans dropped out of the whole program and Turks continued. But I know that the sentiment is that these people who have also been, who have also taken part in the Afrin, uh, in the Turkish-led military offensive for, to take over Afrin, they, they, there's a feeling that they should not be abandoned. And that, that's going to be very difficult militarily. And thirdly, uh, don't forget, Turkey has not made peace with the Assad regime. The sentiments about the regime in Damascus, uh, particularly at the presidency, are deep and real, and Erdogan has refused uh, various offers by Russians and others to uh, make amends with the regime, sort of, uh, you know, start contact. So these are uh, the three components, political components, that make it very real. So uh, this week, Erdogan wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, essentially uh, a plea to the West, do something about Idlib. He has uh, some very dramatic lines. One of them is that he says Idlib is the last exit before the toll. If the international community, including Europe and US, fail to take action, not only innocent Syrians, but the entire world will pay a price. So this is a little bit ironic because just two weeks to three weeks ago, when we talked about US, uh, Turkish-US tensions in another podcast, 
Erdogan had written a, an op-ed in the New York Times saying, we have other alternatives, pointing clear to Russia, you know, Eurasia, etc. And only two weeks later, he's like, the West, where are you? Let's work together to stop Idlib. So if there is this kind of big wave of, of uh, refugees, you said that the Turkish border is now closed. But um, what do you think is going to happen? You think that, I mean, there are apparently 30,000 people that fled even before the military campaign started. And if there are 3 million people there, um, what will happen? Where are they going to go? I think they're hoping for a phased out campaign. I mean, this is where they're using their relationship with the Russians to try to get them to agree to do things in increments, time, you know, sort of phase it out. And the idea would be settle, settling some of these people, refugees, in the Euphrates shield area, which is currently controlled by Turkey. There is no capacity, you know, for half a million people even, but they will try. Also, uh, there could be some people coming into Afrin because it's right next door and it's the obvious place. And that, of course, means uh, a ton of uh, intercommunal tension. Afrin is uh, Kurdish dominated. They're not happy. The population is not that happy with the with what they see as the Turkish occupation and newcomers will not be cursed. They will not be offering people. So that's also going to be a difficult thing to manage. But I think they're going to try, but Turks are going to try to work with Russians to also prevent major attack on Turkey-backed groups. So the, the whole Turkish effort in Idlib, there are 12 military posts, Turkish outposts in Idlib. And their whole effort over the past year as part of the Astana process has been trying to wheel people away, trying to sort of recruit people, uh, jihadists, away from the Al-Qaeda-linked more extremist groups. But now that they have done that, somewhat, you know, with limited success, they have managed with some groups but haven't managed with the majority of the jihadists in Idlib. They feel that at least they need to protect the non-Al-Qaeda groups over there. And I don't really think that this is what the regime and the Russians want to do. I think they sort of see it as an abscess, in, as in the words of Lavrov, as something that needs to be eliminated, as sort of a hotbed of terrorists. Last week in, Astan, in Tehran, there was a meeting of the Astana process with Erdogan Rouhani, and Putin around the table, it was broadcast, the final uh, session was broadcast live, unbeknownst to the Turkish leader and to the Turkish delegation, really sort of showing before us a very real difference. Erdogan coming out and making a plea for a ceasefire on video, and Putin very politely saying that those are all nice ideas, but I'm paraphrasing it. But he said, essentially said pretty much this. Those are all very nice ideas, but I wish the terrorists understood this kind of stuff. And then basically it's a problematic situation for Turkey because Turkey wanted to have an opening, a strategic opening, an alternative with Russians and Astana process, Russians and Iran. And now it's sort of coming back to haunt its own uh, strategy in Syria and wants to 
turned to the West, but uh, Americans, you know, there's a t the relationship with Washington is terrible. And Europeans, even though there seems to be a second honeymoon with Germany, do not, the Europeans do not really matter all that much in, in, in terms of Idlib specifically. Okay, maybe we can take a, a kind of look forward in our crystal ball. I and mean, we talked about some of the humanitarian consequences of this attack. What are the geopolitical consequences? What does Syria look like once Idlib has fallen? Well, I think, um, you know, for one, it, it, it's... And I think Idlib will fall. And I mean, I think it's a question of, of, of how it falls and when it falls and when it can be kind of... If it can be controlled more slowly, but I don't see any other outcome than the regime moving forward eventually. And then you do get a regime that effectively um, controls more and more of the country. Um, you have a Turkish area and, and, and a an remaining American area, but I think this uh, consolidates both the facts on the ground, but also the narrative that this is a regime that is moving forward, that's on the ascendancy, that no one is going to stop them. I think it sends a message both to the Turks, but also to, to the American uh, back groups on the ground, and principally the Kurds, that... that you can hold out, but but you need to get real about where this is headed. And, you know, we've seen elsewhere that there are some ongoing negotiations uh, between the Kurds um, and Damascus about some kind of reintegration and deal there. So that would be the broader sense of outlook, I think, as it consolidates that. But, you know, the big unknown here, like so much of, of where we are in the Middle East today, is, is where the Americans are. Um, and, and up until recently, there seemed to be a sense that, that, that uh, Trump was accepting of this trajectory. He'd essentially given up on Syria. He wanted to get out. Um, Assad was moving forward and he wasn't going to stop anyone. And I think that was very much shaping the response of, of the whole range of actors. In the last few days, actually, the Americans have come out, not Trump himself, but, but folk in the State Department and the military and the DOD saying, no, actually, we're going to hang around a, a long time. Um, and Syria is now a central ground for, for our fight against, um, against Iran in the region. Um, so you have these kind of competing narratives or competing dynamics whereby on the one hand, um, Assad is consolidating his position with Iranian and Russian backing. On the other hand, the Americans are now talking about re-energizing their presence uh, to push back against the, the Iranians in the region. And these two, of course, come, come head to head. And I think, you know, the, I think there's lots of skepticism about how much Trump is willing to um, invest in what, what in this new strategy and whether he will push back to, to, to fight the Iranians. But it could well be that you actually see um, Assad effectively going as far as he can for, for the time being, uh, the Americans deepening, consolidating their, their position in the northeast, uh, the Turks with their swathe of territory above Aleppo caught between the two, their alliance with, with um with the Russians, but also a desire to, to ensure that Assad can't move completely. So it, it's the geo, broader geopolitical fight could be broadening in new ways now and in dangerous ways, but, but it's as uncertain as ever. It certainly sounds from a Russian perspective like they're kind of looking beyond the fighting now. When Putin met with um, Angela Merkel, he at Mirzaberg, he was talking about refugees returning to Syria and was asking for Europeans to, to rebuild Syria, uh, which kind of assumes an end to the sort of active fighting post in Idlib. I think this is also about projecting what they'd like to happen. I think they want to sell a narrative that the conflict's over. Don't go down the alternative path of continuing to resist. Instead, accept what's happened, you know, legitimise 
the effect of Russian victory um, in Syria, including potentially in terms of European messaging to, to Trump and so forth. I mean, Russia, Putin want Europe to sign off on what they have. I don't think it's really about reconstruction, about refugee concerns. They don't really care about either in, 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 in Syria. What they want is the Europeans to accept to legitimize what the Russians have achieved there and, and to allow, and possibly use that as a means, of course, to, to end the conflict from a Russian perspective and provide them with a sustainable way out. But, so, it, but it's, you know, it's started to affect the intra-EU dynamics. It'd be great to hear from you, Aslo, about what Angela Merkel said when that arose. And I think Heiko Maas has been talking about this recently, the German foreign minister. But it was interesting before the German debate started kicking off that other countries piled in and... Apparently, the Poles paid for some refugees to go back from Lebanon to um, uh, to, to Syria. Um, and it looks like there could be uh, quite a lot of divisions amongst Europeans about whether it's time to return refugees to Syria under what conditions. And um, big questions about whether Europeans will put large resources into rebuilding bits of the country which have been... Uh, occupied by Assad rather than um, the areas which are still controlled by rebels. See, you know, just briefly, Mark, on the Putin raising the issue in Germany of the return, Putin knows very well, and this is all that shows to me, the AfD, the alternative uh, for Germany discourse on the issues. Uh, it was the AfD that started traveling um, to Syria, to Damascus, and say, look, it's safe here, you can return. And Putin is sort of poking um, and putting his, his finger on, on the weaknesses of the German domestic debate. I mean, we can talk about, if you want, uh, the reading of uh, Chancellor Merkel's meeting with him in Meseberg. Uh, I tend to disagree with uh, fellow uh, colleagues of mine of, you know, Merkel breaking bad um, and, and really uh, going too early to... So uh, colleague Gustav Grasso <laughs> wrote a, a, a piece about that. But I'm going to sit down and write a piece, as I was encouraged to do. Um, so this is not for this podcast. But I think, I mean, there was a lot of sort of demonstration, um, while by and large, I'm obviously with, with uh, what Julian has been saying on, on the issue, the Russians want sort of, you know, to, to be around the table uh, and acknowledged. Um, but he also knows where the German vulnerabilities are in terms of domestic. But it's, but it's a debate that is obviously kicking off in, in, um, in Europe, because it's clear now that Assad is not going anywhere, even if the Americans stay, stay around in the northeast. He has won the civil war. And Europeans are now having to confront this this this, this reality and, and and think about how they respond. And I mean, we've talked about the German response. And I mean, it wasn't just that the Poles are alleged to have cut some refugee deal. The Polish deputy foreign minister was in Damascus. That was a big step. Uh, the Austrian foreign minister was in Damascus recently. Now that was trying to secure the the the, the release of two German refugee of two jo German prisoners, and it succeeded. But still, you had a European foreign the the Czech. Sorry, the Czech, the uh, Czech foreign minister within, was in Damascus. The Polish deputy foreign minister was in Damascus. You had the French government working with, um, and this is to highlight that it's not just a number of Eastern European states or whatever, but you had the French government cutting a deal with Russia to deliver humanitarian aid uh, to a regime-controlled area that had long been under siege. So there is a broader debate about whether and how you need to engage with a regime, or maybe engage in the word, but work through it um, to secure s some ends. And it's interesting that, that you know the reconstruction card is being played out there and people are talking about refugees and reconstruction are part of this conversation. Um, I think Europeans are thinking about how they can A, not get pulled into this 
this trap that, in a sense, Putin is, is, is playing them to do with refugees, but B, if there's any way on the flip side of that to try and use, um, I hate to say leverage, because it's not really leverage, but, 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 but their ability to deploy some ec economic influence to try and shape a better outcome, which isn't going to be about a transition away from Assad, but may perhaps encourage a political process, open up some humanitarian space. You know, that's a lot of where the European conversation has been going. I think a big question now is whether the perceived US shift pushes Europeans back in the other direction. So do any of you think that we could see a, a kind of new refugee uh, uh, movement back to Syria, that millions of refugees could go back? Or is it more likely that we'll have another refugee crisis with millions coming out of, uh, of Idlib? Several hundred uh, thousand, I believe 250,000 have moved back to the Euphrates Shield area from Turkey. This is an area which was entirely destroyed in, uh, was it during the Turkish operation in the fight against ISIS. It was controlled by ISIS, Jarablus and Al-Bab and several other towns there. And now there's a sort of a small-scale Turkish reconstruction going on in the inner regions. But in Jarablus, there's major Turkish construction. Uh, the area is run by uh, officials from a Turkish province on the border and from people who have traveled there, journalists. I have heard that schools and hospitals and some of the infrastructure is built pretty well and people are happy to uh, move back, move back there. So these are Syrians that are, that are not necessarily from that area, but have moved back to establish some sort of a new order. And because Turkey does not really open up the area, it doesn't really get much credit for it, but I think it's one of the few areas of the war-torn country where things, municipal services and, uh, and education system, roadworks, etc., are functioning quite well. But that's, of course, 250,000, and it took a long time for that to start happening. Uh, there is an anti-refugee sentiment building up in Turkey, in the Turkish public opinion too, and, uh, you know, the, camp the government uh, campaign now is all about, uh, oh, we're rebuilding Syria, we're going to help rebuild Syria and this area, Turkey-controlled area, to move Syrians back. So it's, it's very much changed in tone. I mean, just one to add to that, I think, I mean, it, there is more talk about refugee return, but I think it's important that Europeans acknowledge that it doesn't remain safe in Syria and that, you know, that, that they shouldn't fall into this trap and that, that to start encouraging refugee returns when there are no guarantees about security or what will happen to those that head back would be hugely irresponsible to the backdrop of, of, of seven years of, of European failure and, and, and letting down of the Syrian people. So, I mean, if there's anything to be salvaged from 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 European policy to, towards Syria, I think one of the things is not to, to to start pushing back Syrian refugees who who clearly the conditions are not right. The question is whether Europe can use some of its residual influence to try and shape um, some improved circumstances on the ground that might incentivize some to want to return home. And that is perhaps all that is now left to do. Okay. Well, it's a more hopeful uh, place to end than we started with. 
And there's one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Amber, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? <laughs> yeah, it's very good. I mean, the last podcast we did is only a few days ago, so I still am halfway through Philippe's Hands East Westry, which is brilliant. Um, but before I, and this is my bookshelf for today, before I get onto Philippe's Hands, uh, I do a lot of uh, kids reading. Um, so for all the mothers and fathers out there in the foreign policy community, um, here's a classic that still goes down very well at home, and that is Judith Kerr's uh, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, which I think is beautifully uh, illustrated. And of course, for a German, the story of Judith Kerr is so much, again, a depiction of my country's history when she grew up here in uh, the 1920s and 1930s as a daughter to the um, famous theater critic of the Weimar Republic, Alfred Kerr. Her, and um, then had to flee with her family in 1933 and ended up in London. And I think too many Brits. Uh, she'll be Judith Kerr. And Ellen Yentop has uh, done a beautiful, beautiful documentary about her returning to Berlin um, in his uh, Imagine series a while ago. So Judith Kerr is uh, the tiger who came to tea. Thank you. So I'm less familiar with Judith Kerr's story, but I still know the book by heart from uh, uh, many readings with my children. And particularly, they particularly loved the last uh, line, and he never did. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Julian, what's on your bookshelf? It's hard to follow on from that, to be honest. I kind of, do I really want to plunge us back into kind of what I'm reading? We could end on a more hopeful, optimistic note about the future. I'm reading um, Into the Hands of the Soldiers, which is... Um, David Kirkpatrick, who was a New York Times bureau chief in Cairo, it's his telling of, of the events and developments that kind of have unfolded in, in, in Egypt since the uprising there, the fall of Mubarak, and how that eventually led to, to Sisi coming to power and what that means. So I'm, I'm just beginning that now, but it, it's an on-the-ground, really insightful, interesting, penetrative look at, at what's happening in Egypt. Okay, and what about you, Asta? On my bookshelf is a book by Michiko Kakutani. Some of you may f be familiar with that name. For the longest time, she was the chief book critic for the New York Times, uh, very much known for her long, elaborate sentences, leads that were as long as a paragraph, but somehow beautifully constructed enough that editors would let her get away with it. She was almost an exception in journalism world where you're told to write short and crisp and clear and straightforward sentences. Uh, she was the opposite. She did the opposite, but beautiful uh, writer. Now, this book is interesting. It's about the age of Trump. No, Trump, note and falsehood in the age of Trump. And basically, um, looking into uh, Trump's post-truth world, conspiracy theories and ideologies that have resurfaced, old ideologies that have resurfaced, and, you know, from Russian propaganda to various floods on our screen, it's, it's a good read. I do recommend it. My uh, recommendation is not a book, it's a book review um, by Louis Menon of um, Francis Fukuyama's uh, latest book on identity politics in the New Yorker and he describes uh, rather well the kind of arc from the end of history to identity politics and looks at, it's a book about vulgar Hegelianism and Kojev and things like that but it's a, it's a fascinating uh, description of uh, the hopes and fears of, uh, of foreign policy professionals over the last few decades. Anyway, um, we hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you have, please 
head straight to the iTunes page and give us a five-star rating and a review because that's the best way of letting other people know about this podcast and uh, spreading the word beyond the uh, happy band of people who listen to us already. Um, if you have any comments on this podcast, if you want to uh, suggest any uh, books or articles for our bookshelf segment, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Anne McMullen, Asla Aydin Tashbash, Julian Barnes Dacey, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atzinaro. Thank you.